0: Hi everyone, it's Dr Deanne Ross here. I'm the Love Theorist. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. This podcast is called Revolutionary Love at Work, Ways to Stop Seclusion and Restraint in Mental Health Facilities. This is a very full-on intense topic and can have quite unexpected perhaps impacts on people listening And we have a range of people who may be listening to this podcast and I ask you therefore to really take care of yourself and if you're finding what I'm saying too affecting, too triggering, please uh, perhaps take a break, find someone to talk with. Um, This is not about um, adding to anybody's distress. This is hopefully uh, a podcast after two related ones on seclusion and restraint where I painted some of the picture of how I understand the issue as a a deep ethical wrong in our society. This this has a more hopeful flavour, even though I still talk about some quite distressing things. So if you could just bear that in mind and look after yourself, that would be really good. So the idea of revolutionary love is at the heart of what I am, looking to do which is to build a theory of love and love is revolutionary when it when it is used to reduce change resist any type of violence any type of lovelessness and any type of injustice that we may be involved in in our life or work I'm particularly for now in this podcast talking around a work-based environment of mental health systems where I've had some practice experience myself and the issue of seclusion and restraint as the most disturbing example of violence in the name of care that I've been involved with in my professional career as a social worker. So revolutionary love at work can involve many things Um, it's it's not that it's a really narrow pathway and just some people for example just social workers know how to be revolutionary love um, and to practice it in the workplace and it has many dimensions and and today I'm just hoping to give you some examples of what's already happening in mental health workplaces that I consider to be revolutionary love Um, and it does help us be hopeful and also creates this wide path of what any one of us can do, whether we're in a mental health facility, working, trying to help people um, on their way through complex mental health issues with no coercion. Has to, the coercion does not sit beside care and make care work. It undercuts and undermines acts of care toward people when coercion obviously seclusion being an extreme example of it is occurring so revolutionary love is non-coercive care in mental health systems it's trauma-informed care it's gentle loving kind really respecting and supporting a person to feel empowered even in the most disempowering situations helping people maintain their dignity and regard and for all of that to be possible and this is these ideas of how we want to be with people in the client or patient role are what many professionals in the helping space um, are trained how to do so it becomes a particularly heartbreaking situation to find ourselves and I certainly have found myself in circumstances where I am acting in coercive ways with legal force behind me toward people who are really distressed and have a mental health condition and are being forced to have treatment against their wishes. So it's a really big topic. It's got a lot of implications and aspects. But what I'm saying is there are perhaps a lot of ways that we can contribute that we may underestimate Um, as individuals acting uh, with love and compassion and kindness. But when many people do that and when it's purposeful and when it's directed at system system change, workplace culture change, uh, it can have ripple effects. It absolutely can. And it helps us understand why some facilities in Australia do not use seclusion and restraint. This is mental health facilities. While others do. Um, what what is causing one workplace, one mental health facility to know how to be with people uh, in all sorts of stages of unwellness and distress and and not use force and coercion yet in another facility that is used and used increasingly in some instances? as the royal commission in Victoria found in 2021. Okay so this is this is where I'm at I'm wanting to give you a little bit of background actually around how I how I came to this issue but also in doing so actually honour two mental health nurses who allowed me to stand alongside them when they initiated one of the most incredible changes in a workplace that reduced and actually stopped seclusion for a period of time in a mental health facility that for decades had secluded people to the highest level in the state of Queensland. So like it's a really, the the story uh, that I can relate about what they did, at least in brief, is just one example of what is happening all around Australia and all around the world Um, that is cause for hope, but much more needs to be done. Okay. So I began my social work career at the Royal Dallant Hospital in Tasmania. And like many of the mental health institutions, literally they were institutions, uh, they had a prison-like feel about them and look about them. The Royal Dallant Hospital... um, was built by convicts so it was very it was a very austere building it had large walls all around the perimeter of of the multiple buildings inside the grounds had barbed wire around the top for all the world it looked like a prison inside it looked like a prison um, and people were treated like prisoners so as a brand new social worker um, never actually having been in a mental health facility of any sort to actually go into such a devastatingly horrific and distressing place and witness so much suffering um, and so much coercion and control actually shaped my whole life thereafter um, and certainly left me feeling powerless in the short term, but coming forward and learning from many people along the way, uh, having a much better sense now how to support how we think about what can make a difference. Okay, so so that was my introduction to the hidden inside part of a a total institution that people would, the public would rarely know about. Uh, And as we know, over the more recent decades, the policy in the main has been moving away from total institutions to community-based care with Mental health facilities now predominantly being a ward in a general hospital. Some private hospitals also have mental health facilities, but it's the public hospitals, mental health facilities that have seclusion rooms and have authority under the Mental Health Act to force people into seclusion rooms under certain circumstances. Now fast forward to about 15 years ago I had the incredible privilege to stand alongside as I was mentioning briefly a moment ago two mental health nurses um, at the mental health facility that I was working at and what I saw happening over a period of some months was one of the most dramatic, impressive changes in workplace culture, in the multidisciplinary staff's understanding of what was happening when people are secluded and actual change in their practice. So, So what happened was that these two mental health nurses went and did some research around the kind of training that is needed to reduce seclusion and restraint. They got permission from the hierarchy to implement this training um, in the ward where they worked. And one of the key things about it was that all the all the clinical staff had to be involved in the training, from the psychiatrist, the med- or the medical staff, all the nursing staff, um, and the allied health staff. This was critical because all the staff and the workplace culture of how staff think and talk about what's happening as issues, um, is variously um, perpetuated through different members of the staff, even though there are power inequalities between staff of course, especially within such a heavily medical focused focus to this approach of responding to people with mental health issues so anyway the training was three days full time all the staff had to do the training it had a large emphasis on international, research on the harm of seclusion and restraint and ways to avoid it and follow through from that, um, looking at any event, any seclusion event that happened that the the mental health nurses would go and interview all the people involved, obviously the patient themselves and the staff involved, try and understand what the precipitating factors were to the seclusion event, what was done to try and avoid it and then how it felt and what people were thinking after it to try and avoid it happening in the future. So it had a really detailed kind of protocol basically of how to respond if there were seclusion events. There was also follow-up training, a shorter one-hour training to help support the shifting culture the shift in clinical practice to avoid using seclusion and restraint what is so impressive about what these two mental health nurses initiated is that for the first three months after that training of all the staff on that mental health facility there were no seclusions like it's hard to i say it and i still can't quite believe it that it's a really complex ward. There are a range of people who admitted from extreme, extreme um, depression and risk to self and others kind of presentations of people to people who, you know, who just need a quiet place to catch their breath with life. Just very complex ward dynamics that for the first time in the history of that facility, that there were no seclusions, was an absolute affirmation of the value of the training the value of supporting staff giving them tools to think about what is happening in different ways and how to respond differently and giving them permission uh, to act differently so it's very complex what happened there are lots of resistances and complexities of course um, but the follow-through had an an incredible impact and, and there's a the confidence of the staff built as they saw that they could handle without force uh, situations that in the past they would very quickly make a judgment for and place someone in seclusion. So that, to me, was one of the most interesting, most empowering um, experiences to be part of because I could see that we didn't have to accept the status quo as the best that was possible, and. Ever since then, I, I wrote I wrote a piece with the two colleagues um, and we talked about the need for systemic change and the, all the kinds of ways that change could be contributed to. And a lot of that did focus on workplace culture. In the article that we wrote together, which I'll make available in the next newsletter, I put together the details of the references I'm using here. But just to give you some examples of some of the system-wide implications that this was back in 2014 that we wrote this article together that would make a difference not necessarily individual actions but taken together as a concerted effort to turn a trauma organized workplace where hurt people hurt people that's Sandra Bloom's concept into a trauma-informed workplace so that people who come into the mental health service who have complex trauma backgrounds aren't further traumatized uh, through the use of coercion and including and especially seclusion. So the idea of a whole system of recovery is a very interesting one too, uh, and sits alongside the individual recovery for people who are challenging, feeling challenged with mental health issues in their life but the kinds of things that would make a difference um, at the organizational cultural level of mental health services is to really work very very fast and hard uh, and non-violently to address any forms of bullying any form of staff coercion um, and any any kind of gossiping for example that can really be depleting of goodwill between people in the staff group and building cultural safety. Um, this is very important um, and really working to address issues uh, like staffing shortages, lack of training, um, how treat how staff are treated by management, problem solving, looking for solutions that build confidence in the group of people the clinic clinicians and other people who work in mental health wards to be able to build a safe respectful environment for them to work in so that they can act in safe and respectful ways toward patients the research shows that this is true i'll give you some examples of that in a minute so the one example at the staff group level is the importance of safe and non-blaming debriefs when there's what's called an adverse event for someone who's a mental health patient, or sometimes it's the staff where there's been a staff member where there's been an adverse event, and these debriefs are meant to be non-blaming, but typically do end up being blaming. But to move them to a safe, respectful conversation about what has happened here, how could this look different? Whose responsibility is it to do something different here? Um, and I think a really important part of all of this at this sort of looking at the staff and systems level is that all clinical staff need to have professional supervision that is trauma informed and it needs to be independent of the workplace and independent of line management authority so that staff feel safe to talk about their vulnerabilities and concerns and how they're practicing without feeling it's going to become a performance management issue. I think this is incredibly important. Okay, and I think the other, other aspect of how staff are treated that has, can have positive flow-on effects for patients is that there's a natural justice emphasis in how people are treated, um, that people are treated fairly in the workplace and, and not scapegoated. And I saw far too many examples of people being scapegoated. So, so this is at the, at the service level of what to do. At the interpersonal level, and the research shows this and, and the research from people who are mental patients, mental health patients show this, that to be treated respectfully, to be involved in decisions that affect them and to have what's going on in the ward and in relation to them explained and discussed with them are always that they believe help, this is person live lived the lived experience, help them feel more safe and less likely to be violent. And I think also in terms of the ideas that are used for how that inform, as well as the values that inform how practitioners respond, we need to extend beyond the medical model and and with all due respect. Um, and there is a place, I think, for medication. But when it is the main form of intervention, it swamps out other ways of interacting with people. For example, Many professions learn the importance of narrative therapy, listening to people's stories, leading with the next step based on what people believe is important, having told their stories. This is crucial for recovery-oriented practice, trauma-informed practice. So these are just some examples. And it's, and it's, not, it's, it's not strange what I'm saying, is it? And part of, part of what can be really healing for a person in a mental health patient role is to be treated as an equal, as someone who knows what's happening to themselves in their body and in their lives, and to be included in discussions and matters that affect them as an equal party. And I find that a really valuable idea. So anyway, they're just some of the ideas um, that are sitting in that earlier document uh, with the two mental health nurses who initiated that incredible example of actually stopping seclusion um, for that period of time and thereafter there were some very extreme circumstances um, that did require at least in the Klesian's judgment that uh, people were secluded but even this even after all this time the level of seclusion in that mental health facility is one of the lowest in the state instead of being one of the highest in the state so change can happen and And it's really important, I noticed that at the time it was really important that the people around the two mental health nurses who weren't directly involved needed to really stand with them and support them because it was fairly complicated what they were doing. And not everybody agreed and they had to really work with a lot of conflict and argument about the best way of going about the training and trying to change workplace culture. Okay, so that that was a really pivotal moment in my career and and now that I'm an academic it, it is much more about what research is it that I can do that might make a difference and I'll come to that toward the end of the podcast but what I thought might be really helpful now because I can actually provide the link for this article to you is a is telling you some of the ideas that I Found through the research I was doing for an article I wrote in 2020. Now, the article was called Toward Coercion Free Trauma Informed Care in Mental Health Systems. And I was was trying to keep building on that 2014 work that my two colleagues did and really anchor that um, in the moment because of my social work um, background. Uh, in the social work profession, what can social workers do that can help reduce seclusion and restraint? And for me, that's an important question because most clinicians are not in the circumstance of the decision or the space where seclusion might be happening or the lead up to the decision is made. And so we can't directly in, in the moment, in situ, influence that decision. So our contribution needs to be indirect. Um, and it's certainly at times in my career, I have provided professional supervision to some of the frontline staff who have been involved in those decisions. That's just one way as a social worker in the mental health service that I could I could make an indirect contribution. So this, as I said at the beginning, it opens a really wide path to what we can do to contribute and there's incredible examples throughout the world of what helps. And just to say, uh, when so this doesn't get to be too long, a podcast at this time, it really matters what our values are. It really matters that we grapple with what can be seeming like um, a system of violence that just won't change, where people are treated with disrespect and are controlled against their wishes. But it's not all that's happening in trauma-organised systems. There are good people trying to do work that is non-violent, that is loving and caring, and we need to be allies with them. And we must also recognise that mental health patients, when they're in a mental health facility, also can make incredible contributions to the safety of other people on the ward and I've seen mental health patients being really caring and supportive of each other and in fact it's probably the most important thing and experience that people have when they're mental health patients and that is their peer-to-peer interactions and recognition of a shared experience to some extent. Anyway Uh, I will, in the newsletter that gives you some references, actually note a couple of uh, useful documents that I don't refer to directly here, but just to mention them so I don't forget. The Melbourne Social Equity Institute in 2014 wrote what I think at the time and still is a very important document on um, the issue of seclusion and restraint in Australian mental health facilities. And that, along with a 2017 report, by the chief psychiatrist of New South Wales, Wright, um, who looked at what was happening in the New South Wales mental health system after the death of Miriam Merton, um, who was a mental health patient at the time, who died after multiple falls while soon after, and not only but while she was in seclusion, um, and the inquiry that uh, Dr. Wright. Led in 2017, both that that inquiry and the Melbourne Social Equity Institute report of 2014, which was a research-based piece of work, both say very similar things: that whole of system change is needed, uh, that and that's multi-layered, from governance through to staff training and support, to clinical practices, uh, etc., for seclusion and restraint to be reduced and eliminated. So while that might just seem, oh, my goodness, that's just too big and, you know, how do we do this, the good news in that is that wherever you might find yourself, if you ever become a practitioner in the mental health facility or someone closely aligned with people who do, wherever people are, we can make that contribution. So I just want to give you um, a couple of examples, well, actually five examples, five main examples of the overarching ideas which with which hold within them other ideas. Let me so this is I've summarised these in the 2020 article I was mentioning, and just going to that page now. Um, the first one is shared decision making, and I've mentioned it briefly in pa- in passing before, and there there is international research on this and it's exactly as it sounds that historically and certainly when I started in the mental health services people who were in mental health facilities were not seen to have any capacity to make a decision and it weren't allowed to vote and, and a whole range of their human rights including freedom to move were taken from them that is not how it's understood these days at least I can only speak for Queensland, and the idea of fluctuating capacity is um, within the new Mental Health Act that was um, gazetted in 2016. And that says that it is behoven on clinicians to recognise the what could be a changing situation in terms of a person's capacity to make decisions for themselves and make good decisions as to when to try and involve and talk to a person about matters that affect them and so I think that's really important and so the onus comes back onto clinical staff to to be proactive to find a good time a good way to engage a person in matters that affect them and I certainly have seen people who are very emotionally and mentally distressed still able to make decisions that are good for them. They may need some support with that but Every effort needs to be made to involve people in decisions that affect them. This is so crucial. It makes this is this natural justice idea that I was mentioning before. It seems strange that we have to mention this, don't we? But I think it's that historical idea that people who are mental patients don't have capacity to make decisions, and certainly some people don't. And some people are under guardianship act or have someone with an enduring power of attorney over their affairs. But they the people I have met in those circumstances always have points of view about what they want and what's good for them. So it doesn't foreclose listening to someone just because they're under the guardianship act. In fact, we need to listen more carefully and more deeply. Anyway, so number one of the five overarching strategies that individually and collectively especially can start to really shift a workplace culture toward trauma-informed care which helps reduce seclusion and restraint indirectly. That's the first one. The second one is developing opportunities for co-design and co-management of services. You can see this is sitting up at service level. So this is where a, a mental health service might have a, an advisory group of people with lived experience. Now I think there's a real risk that this kind of idea can become tokenistic. Um, But I've also seen, I've seen both, I've seen it be tokenistic where only certain kinds of matters are given to the advisory group to make comment on, Um, and it's very controlled by the governing group in the organisation. But I've also seen it used... Incredibly well for very complex issues to get that nuanced and lived experience perspective on matters that clinicians just can't on their own do justice to. So, co design and co management of services. I've seen um, really good examples of people who are employed because of lived experience, and a big shout out to lived experience workforce um, and peer support workforce. This is an incredibly important development in. The makeup of the of the people who are employed in mental health services, um, who can look out for the well being of peers. Um, so, um, that I have seen examples of people in lived experience roles having very significant influence in decision making in a representative advocacy role. Very important. Very important. Um, co-design co-management of services that's number two of systems level changes that and developments that can help reduce seclusion and restraint and other forms of of coercion um now i think this is an interesting point because i in an early that earlier podcast i talked about when trauma when when care turns to torture and what all professionals in the helping areas are in taught to do is the and it's appropriate that they have a duty of care an ethical legal duty of care toward the person in their care to act in their best interests, and even when not acting to do so is still in their best interest now as you can see coercion and control in the name of care can cut straight across acting in a person's best interests. Um, no matter how informed clinically the judgment might be, to use force and coercion, the idea of duty of care, I think, needs to be needs to be set alongside um, a, a less a less kind of clinician-centred responsibility, I guess. And this idea of safeguarding, I find to be very useful. Um, I I think there may be many writers who talk about safeguarding. I've got my source from Bamford 2016. And it's really, it's other times talked about as a dignity of risk. And it's not about just standing back and let someone, you know, have a to act really dangerously toward themselves or others, but it is about a more discerning consideration and engagement with the person about who's responsible and when does the duty of care need to become a controlling action against a person, against their wishes. So safeguarding approach, and I really like this, is building a person's capacity, supporting them to become empowered to keep themselves safe and the people around them safe and so it's an ongoing commitment and one actually all of us in society need to cultivate that ability to act safely toward others and ourselves um, and it's about yeah that dignity of risk and it might be a way through that care versus control conundrum that clinical staff can find themselves in and and be very troubled by it even as they do it so the other related point to that, which I find very helpful to keep thinking about, um, is that I think some of, some of the issue that's happening for people who are being secluded and restrained is understanding, obviously it's all about power, but when, when it's seen to be unfair how they're treated, then I think that's a clue to look, Look at natural justice ideas. Are the people involved in the decision that affects them? Are they being listened to respectfully? Is their whole of circumstance being considered? Are there less restrictive ways of acting? This is such an important principle enshrined in the Mental Health Act. So understanding, for example, that sometimes people's aggression and violence as patients in a mental health facility is because of the context of unsafety that they're in and not being able to maintain and safeguard their own safety and, in fact, acting aggressively toward others. What I find really helpful and the most useful ideas comes from Sandra Bloom again. I find her very influential in this space around trauma-informed care. And she says that violence needs to be understood systemically It's if we only focus on how the mental health patient is acting and they're violent and therefore they get put in seclusion and they're the problem and then everything's fine, that is so naive and so dangerous. And um, that's why we keep repeating the trauma-causing aspects of organisations, especially mental health facilities. So she says that there are different levels of responsibility and the most Responsible person under the Mental Health Act for the safety of patients is the chief psychiatrist. That is the role of the chief psychiatrist in every state patient safety. And from the health minister to the chief psychiatrist, through all the levels of the hierarchy, to the managers, to the clinicians on the floor of the ward to the patients and other patients around them who may be able to help influence someone who's becoming very distressed and likely to become aggressive or threatening to themselves or others. And so what Bloom says is that there's a cascading failures of responsibility that kind of come through, percolate through what looks like everyday mundane running of an organisation and upholding of policies. And The the most powerless person in the whole layering of what a mental health system is about is the mental health patient, especially one who is not willing to seek guidance or be controlled through verbal directions of mental health staff. And I find that really helpful for being clear about who needs to be involved in the change efforts. Um, to bring about a safer, more respectful and natural justice-oriented system. Um, so what we one of the implications of that is that patient violence can be understood as a as a, an expression of the violence within the system. It's not to excuse it, no violence is okay, but we can't only look at what the patient is doing to understand what's going on here. Anyway, that's number three in terms of the five overarching service level strategies that can help reduce seclusion and restraint. The next one, and there's been some interesting research done in Australia on this and elsewhere, is supporting the creation of safe wards. And it seems really, I think, strange to think that this is new research that about how to make wards safe for staff and patients. But that's what's happening. And what I find really amazing, and the research is still relatively new on this, um, but the, there were, in 2017, Fletcher and colleagues actually did some research around safe wards and looked at what happened after they got each ward facility to institute some changes. And they looked at 13 inpatient facilities. This was in Victoria. They found a 36% reduction in the use of seclusion rates compared to non-participating wards so now what now that's that's encouraging you know what is so i guess not surprising but it's so so um oh, gosh perplexing i guess is the word when i think about what's the word here yep yeah, perplexing this is what actually helps to create safe wards clear mutual expectations between the service use and staff soft words soft voice soft eyes de-escalation or knowing how to help someone calm if they've become very agitated or distressed positive words being careful how bad news is conveyed to a person know each other that is the staff member and the patient Have mutual help meetings, have calm down methods, give reassurance, plan with the person for their discharge. There is nothing in what I have just said that is strange or new that doesn't actually happen, at least to some extent. So, what we're talking about is a more consistent service wide ways of practicing that are non violent, loving, and gentle in partnership with the patient, the mental health patient. So I find that really hopeful and what was perplexing to me is, oh my, with the good-hearted people who do their education, intending to make a difference to people working in mental health facilities and often acting in ways that actually make things worse for the person who's seeking or being forced to seek care for their mental health situation. So, but at the same time, it's hopeful because if you're ever in a mental health facility, You can talk with soft words. You can be kind and gentle and respectful and listen to the person and make sure that they understand how to keep themselves safe if things start getting intense and um, chaotic on the ward. We can do this. Supporting the creation of safe wards, point number four of the five system level practices that can really start to reduce seclusion and restraint. Number five is the organizing of training for all staff to eliminate seclusion and restraint. And of course, I gave that incredible example of colleagues that I knew. Um, and the 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 international best practice research that my colleagues used was road, called Roadmap to Seclusion and Restraint, free free mental health services training manual. And it's by um, an organization in the minute I'll just use their capital letters, S-A-M-S-H-A um, 2018 and in the newsletter that I'll create shortly, I'll put that reference for you as well. Okay, and um, so they're the five hospital-based systems level overarching strategies within which are practices can happen that can support the reduction of seclusion and restraint, very consistent with what those two reports, the one from the Melbourne Social Equity Institute of 2014 and the one from the Inquiry in New South Wales by Wright in 2017, very very consistent with that it probably doesn't pick up enough on the responsibility of managers and people in governance parts of services to really walk the talk of non-violence and respect and regard for their people um, working for them I think more could be said about that just one other point that I'd like to make uh, as to what is really important and of course I've mentioned in passing that this restrictive practice is one of the most important principles, that whenever there's an option to act with less coercion and less force um, and less use of seclusion, then it's, it's ethically and legally beholding on practitioners to do that. What, is ha- what happens in communities, and I do believe communities care, but communities need resourcing to care. This has been one of the big lessons out of the deinstitutionalisation movement, not only for mental health patients either. But there are some examples, and not as many as you would like to think, um, of community-based non-coercive care options. Now, the most impressive one that I know about is the Open Dialogue model, um, which is uh, uh, ha- is an internationally renowned community-based holistic approach that uses medication with other therapy. It also uses peer support, meaningful, creates meaningful work opportunities for people and have home-like places such as healing homes uh, where people are supported through their mental health experience and what is so amazing the the Finnish example of open dialogue again it it's kind of you kind of look at the video which is put together by Mackler in 2014 and think that is that is what you would want people people stop talking to do from the documentary to the, the documentary maker because the phone is ringing and they say oh, look I've got to get that that will be a patient calling and they're our priority The patients are placed as central and it's client-centered practice. It's listening to the person. And the, the method, the main method is including anyone and everyone with the person's permission who wants to help that person recover and go well in life and so it's an open discussion open decision making and one of the most interesting one aspects of that is the equalizing of power between clinicians and patients and carers and family and friends and part of how that happens in the open dialogue concept suggests it doesn't it it's a bit like people sitting in a circle everybody's in a circle non-coercive in terms of it being an invitation not being forced to be there. And then if there is a discussion about what needs to happen, obviously the person who's the patient is absolutely central. But what also happens is that the clinicians, if they um, have a different point of view from each other or not sure what to do, they openly share that in front of the patient and family. So everybody gets to contribute in the co-creation of a way forward, but particularly centering on the person in the patient role. I think the whole issue of power and how power is used is at the heart of the issue of seclusion. And that's that's not that's so obvious that I hardly needs saying. But why I'm saying it here is because the open dialogue method deliberately looks to equalize power, build mutual respect, work with the code, co-design, co-decision making, um, shared decision making. Very impressive. And some of their research shows um, and they're their facility in Finland is working with young people who have onset schizophrenia, um, which can be a severe and enduring form of mental illness for some people for all their lives, but not always impacting through their lifetime. But what they found is an 85% recovery rate for people with a first experience of psychosis. These are young people, and at the point of contact with them was their first experience of a psychotic episode from schizophrenia and the way that they were responded to actually was so successful they didn't go on to have further episodes so I, I just find that really inspiring what, what it kind of leaves us with to some extent is, is the thought, well, is, you know, that if it's in the mental health facility where so much of the coercion and control and obviously seclusion is occurring, what what can we do there um, in the moment of that seclusion issue seeming to be about to happen for somebody? Another really impressive example, and this will be the last one I'll, I'll share with you today anyway. Anyway is is called extended care the extended care model and it was developed by a really impressive another mental health nurse this time in the UK called and a person called Roland Dix there's a really cool video that they've created for educational purposes I'll put that in the newsletter as well for you Um, and this idea of extended care really turns on its head what what is needed at that critical point when someone becomes very distressed or very aggressive in a mental health facility so so what what there's, there's a lot to it but that, and they also had legislation change to support how seclusion was defined and the key part in the legislation was that seclusion no longer involved placing someone against their wishes in a locked room on their own from which they could not leave that's that's kind of at the heart of what seclusion usually means and as you what, what happened is they were able to influence legis- the mental health legislation to enact this extended care model where if someone becomes distressed or aggressive men- mental health trained staff engage the person so, and that can be that they need to hold them, but it's not it's not placing them against their will forcibly on the ground and holding them down. It's absolutely not like that it's actually it's um nonviolent practice at best at its best uh, it's you know so it's actually stopping aggressive actions holding the person firmly, talking with them all the time, explaining them their rights, explaining what they're doing. I'm going to hold your arms here in this position, so can you walk with us and tell us what's happening while well, we go into this room, which is just, is like a, a fairly ordinary lounge room kind of place. It's definitely not a seclusion room. And people sit together on the couch, still holding the person quite firmly, talking with them all the time and come to have a situation of looking for that opportunity to release those holds that they are, have on the person, explaining to the person what they need to do to actually have their arms released and, and so on. And it, it's really impressive. It's really impressive to see the minimal use of physical force, the maximum use of engagement and respect and care toward the person the staying with them, they're not leaving them till they're calm and composed and can say what would be best for them. And, and then when the decision is made, how long they're going to stay there for, or whether the person wants to go back to their room, whether they want the staff to come with them, that is what happens. And they typically all walk out of the room together. I think that is incredible. I think it really works with that non-violent principle of using only only the minimum amount of force needed to neutralise the violence that might be happening or the aggression that might be happening, and no more than that. It is not used as punishment. It is not used to break someone's spirit. And I just think it has so much potential, and I just am again perplexed why we aren't using that here in Australia and all around the world. It's one of the most incredible... Um, changes in that immediate practice of what happens when someone is being forced to be secluded so that's the extended care model you might want to look it up I just find that really hopeful okay so <laughs> bit of a full-on session again today and um, I just wonder what might what might be the most um, pertinent way to finish this session. And I think, you know, if you're never sure, if you're in a circumstance and you become worried for someone who may need mental health treatment, Please please stay connected with them as much as you can and please give them as much information about their rights, including their right to a support person under the Mental Health Act who can be involved in all the decisions with them. Um, it's, it's just often too hard for people to be left to their own devices in complex mental health facilities mm-hmm. when big decisions are being made about them. And sometimes people are so heavily medicated they need someone who really knows and loves them to be right beside them, not also adding to the control but just being with them um, makes such a difference and I don't think we should ever stand still for a moment um, for any situation where a person who is distressed is placed on their own in a space and locked up and left. I think that is a really cruel and inhumane thing to do to somebody. If you know that that's happening to somebody please please try and make connection with them and look to help them survive that and not ever have that experience again and on my closing comment I just wanted to say that I'm currently involved in a very small piece of research um, but it may may make a contribution that's my hope and with some colleagues at my uni we're looking at how to create an app that has multiple resources and supports and um, exemplar videos that could help people who may have previously been secluded in a mental health facility who might be at risk in the future of it or, and family and friends and clinicians to consider the, the the range of factors that can contribute to someone being secluded and what can happen what what can what the person with the app can do um, by using those resources um, and understanding the system, knowing how to negotiate in those really complex times. So we're looking to create an app and um, one of the most important stakeholder groups we're accessing uh, at the moment are people who have had lived experience of being secluded, find out what they think really could work on that app. Um, So just so you know, I'm doing that little bit of research, maybe we could talk about it another time, Um, but hopefully that gives some hope that there are people who care, people who are trying to change this circumstance. And the most important thing is always to be with people who might be having these kinds of coercive experiences and to believe in them, listen to them, have hope for them when they maybe don't have hope for themselves. This is at the heart of what revolutionary love looks like at work, in any workplace, but particularly in mental health places where people may be secluded all right hey thank you thank you for listening to this podcast and i hope you're feeling okay this end of all of that and please reach out to somebody if you're finding that was quite intense i'm really open to your comments as well thank you so much bye now